Good morning, Goos. It's good to good to have baseball again, isn't it? Just we're right now we're on track for a 97 win season. Well, we're three and two. We lost yesterday. Okay, so there are 162 games. If you win 60% of the games, that comes out to 97 games. I'm there for you. So, here we are in Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is probably one of the most memorized chapters of Scripture, or at least one of the most begun to memorize chapters of Scripture. I mean, it's long. It's like 39 verses, you know? But we are at a point in our study... We're at a point in the book of Romans where Paul is starting to tie some things together. He's been giving us some threads all along, and he's now starting to tie them together, and he's starting to cinch them tighter and tighter. We began Romans, as you remember, Paul starting off saying, I'm Paul, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his flesh was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He writes this to all in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is a missionary, he's a church planter, he is eager to go out and do his work in Spain of all places, and he is hoping to stop in Rome on the way out. Never does make it. Rome ends up being his final destination where he gets his head lopped off by the Roman Empire, but that doesn't happen until after he's written this book, thankfully. Paul says in chapter 1 of Romans that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. For in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. That righteousness is from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. But this is good news that has to be delivered because there is bad news. The wrath of God, Paul says in verse 18, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And he, in chapter 1, goes off in this wonderfully rich riff on just how wicked, wicked people can be. All the awful things they do. In fact, not only do they do all these awful things that Paul lists, they even make up new ways of doing evil. Even though they know 
God's righteous decree that those who do these kinds of things deserve death. The human conscience will not let us alone. They not only continue to do these things, but they even approve of those who practice them. They encourage others. They set up cultures in which wickedness is encouraged. People try to outdo each other in just how bad they can be. These are some bad people, Paul says, right? Chapter 1, these Gentiles, these wicked, 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 nasty, mean, bad people. But guess what, Paul says in chapter 2, you who are reading this, you who are feeling self-satisfied, you who are feeling like you are okay because you are in a good relationship with God, guess what? You have no excuse when you pass judgment on these folks because you are guilty of doing the very same things. Paul in chapter 2 is writing to his fellow Jews who would have been cheering him on, would have been applauding, maybe even thinking about specific Gentile neighbors of theirs who were doing these wicked things. But he says, guess what? Think of your own neighbors, your Jewish neighbors. Think of yourself when you think of these sins, because you do the very same things. Both Jew and Gentile are sinful. Everyone, Paul says in chapter 3, everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Both Jew and Gentile alike are under sin. Everyone is under just condemnation. Everyone ought to be ashamed. Everyone is in the place that Biscuit, on the cover of your bulletin, is in. Rightly condemned. But now, Paul says, but now, God's righteousness apart from Torah as we knew it, has been made known. And that's a righteousness to which Torah and the prophets have been pointing all along. They've been testifying to this. This righteousness of God's comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to everybody who believes. There's no difference, really. Everybody's sinned. Jew, Gentile alike have sinned. But Jew and Gentile alike are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice. And here you, you notice, as Paul's stating these things, but in many ways he's not so much proving them as he's laying them out. And as we've been going along, he's been starting to fill in the gaps to make this all make sense. As we get to chapter 8, he's starting to tie this all together. But one big gap that he fills in in chapter 4 is Abraham. He says, Abraham, after all, when he looked into this sort of thing, what did he find out? Well, he found out that he was not justified by anything that he did. His righteousness didn't come by any of his righteous deeds, although he did plenty of good things, Abraham's righteousness came through faith. He's 
a member of the covenant community. He's the beginning of the covenant community. But Paul points out Abraham did this whole circumcision thing after he had already been declared justified, after he had already been declared acceptable to God. How blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. How blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. This is a promise that comes by faith, comes by God's faithfulness, and and we access that simply by trusting it, simply by having faith. Abraham is a good example of what that looks like. It was credited to him as righteousness, Paul says. And those words, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness, they weren't written just for him. But they were also written for us, to whom God will also credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. We have peace with God. Paul says in chapter 5, we have peace with God. The problem, of course, is that we don't always feel that. We don't always live in a way that reflects the fact that we have peace with God. And In chapters 5 and 6, Paul works out what that's like for us, and 7 as well, what it's like for us to be both united with him in his death and also knowing we'll be united with him in his resurrection, our old self crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but the reality that we experience, as Paul talks about in chapter 7, that we do the things we don't want to do, and the things we want to do we fail to do. And this is a struggle. We find... This law, this toward work, Paul says, when I want to do good, evil's right there with me in my inner being. I delight in God's Torah. I really do. Paul, more than anybody else, I bet, delighted in what God had revealed. But he also sees that the members of his body, the instruments of his flesh, they, they're waging war against what he knows. They're making him a prisoner of sin that's at work within his members, within his, the parts of his body. That this, this Torah, this law that God gave that was to be good, that was to, to bring life, ends up being hijacked, ends up being taken over, ends up being used as an instrument for our destruction, what God gave for life has been abused to bring our death. What a wretched man I am, Paul says. Who is going to rescue me from this horrible situation? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, and this is, this is where we're at at the end of chapter 7. This is, this is the situation that Paul's at in his, in his narrative So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's Torah, but in the flesh a slave to the Torah of sin. I know I am God's. I know I am a follower of his. I know that 
my loyalty is to him. But I also know that in my flesh, I still live in a way that reflects a different loyalty. And somehow this Torah that God has given, this law, and whether that is understood as the law, as in what God gave through Moses to the Jewish people, or whether this is a universal recognition of things that are right and wrong that all of our consciences reflect, even if we didn't have the benefit of standing on Sinai and, and receiving that law, we all know that there are some things we ought to do and some things we ought not to do, and we know that we fall short of what is expected of us. Either way, we know that we are betraying the wrong loyalty. And so it is astonishing what Paul writes in the very next verse. Remember, this is, this is verse 25, the second half of verse 25 of Romans 7. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's Torah, but in the sinful nature, in the flesh, I'm a slave to the Torah of sin. Therefore, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the Torah, the spirit of life, set me set you free from the Torah of sin and death. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the Torah of the life-giving spirit set you free in Christ Jesus from the Torah of death-giving sin. There is now no, no, no condemnation. In fact, in the Greek, that word no is thrown to the very front of the sentence. And it is astonishing that we get this right after he has said all the things that he has said in the first seven chapters. But it's true. Last week at Easter, we looked at chapter 24 of Luke. The story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the disciples who were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And then this mysterious fellow traveler shows up and he asks them what they're talking about. And they say, well, there was this Jesus guy and we thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But then, you know, he's dead. That didn't seem to work out the way we had hoped. He said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in the scriptures concerning himself. I was struck this week as I was doing a morning prayer. The passage was in in the book of Micah. Micah is one of those prophets, one of those prophets who spoke, one of those prophets through whom God spoke, one of those prophets 
from whom Jesus explained all that was said in them concerning himself. Micah, chapter 7. Micah's writing, writing this prophecy. He's giving this prophecy to a people that are openly rebellious against God. They're trying to find their salvation in allegiances and alliances with other powers. Basically, they're hoping to play one off against the other. This does not work. They're guilty of all kinds of sin. Their culture is one that is wicked, that is corrupt, where the people who have wealth and power that should be using those to care for those who can't care for themselves are instead exploiting those who can't care for themselves. Micah makes it clear the judgment is coming to this people. But then toward the end, and you get this in the prophets over and over, you get these statements that almost don't make sense. You get the prophets going off for chapter after chapter after chapter about how wicked these people are and how much they have it coming and how desperately they are going to be crying out for deliverance when none is going to be coming because they're going to get exactly what's coming to them. And then he says, but as for me, I will look to Yahweh. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So don't rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, Yahweh will be a light to me. I must bear the indignation of Yahweh because I have sinned against him. But I'm going to bear the indignation of Yahweh because I've sinned against him until he takes my side and executes judgment for me. He's going to bring me out into the light and I will see his vindication. The one who rightly bears the indignation of the Lord, the one who is under just punishment, is the one who is going to be vindicated. How does that make any sense? God's going to execute judgment, but he's going to execute judgment for me rather than against me. This is not what we would expect, is it? A few days before that, we had On Good Friday, I had the privilege of preaching at St. Stephen's AME Church out in Essex. If you would like to amuse yourself, you can go on their website and look at what it looks like when Jason preaches in an African-American context. This was a seven-last-word service. I was assigned the one where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Remember, this is the story Luke tells. The people stood watching... The rulers were even sneering at Jesus as he was hung up on the cross with these other criminals, these wrongdoers on either side of him. They said, "Ah, he saved others. Well, if he's Messiah, if he's the chosen one, why doesn't he go save himself? And the soldiers came and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. They said, so if you're the king of the Jews, then why don't you exercise some power and save yourself? 
There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. So evidently the soldiers could read. And then one of the criminals who hung there with him hung, hurled insults at him. Aren't you Messiah? Well, then save yourself. Save us. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same condemnation? We are punished justly. We, we're just getting what our deeds deserve. But this guy hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. These criminals, these wrongdoers, malefactors, the old King James translates them, these are, these are bad guys. We read in the other Gospels that they were laced eye. word means that they were not just thieves, as is often used to describe them. These were domestic terrorists. These were rebels. These were insurgents. These guys were hiding IEDs under the Roman roads. These were not only people who engaged in murder. They did so with a purpose. They thought that they were doing what they were supposed to do to honor God, but their violence was not what God had in mind. And so as they hung on a Roman cross, not the last, not the first of the young Jewish men who would be hung on Roman crosses as an example to others, as they hung there, in the very last hours of their life, one of them goes along with the world that he's been living in and mocks Jesus. But the other one, the other one turns away from that. He acknowledges his own guilt and he turns to Jesus to ask, please remember me. Jesus' answer is, I'm not just going to remember you when I come to my kingdom one day later on when I resurrect the dead I'm telling you today you will be with me in paradise and we've heard that story so many times I think we can forget just how scandalous that is this is a person who was a wrongdoer this is a person who quite possibly set back his people probably because of the things that he was doing the Romans were treating the rest of his people even more harshly. This person, as he himself admitted, was guilty of the crimes he was accused of and was justly receiving the penalty of death for what he had done. And in the very last moments of his life, he asks Jesus to remember him. doesn't even pray a proper sinner's prayer. I mean, I, I, he can't kneel down at that point. He's nailed up to a cross, but, you know, he doesn't even say, Jesus, I know I've sinned against you. Please come into my heart. He just says, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. His theology is thoroughly unformed. He just knows that he needs to be rescued. 
And he asks for that. And Jesus' answer is, yeah, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is deeply offensive to everybody who has done the right thing throughout their lives, isn't it? This guy goes and does whatever he wants to do, and then very last minute, he says, oh, I'm sorry. He doesn't even say I'm sorry, does he? He just says, help me. Help me, Jesus. Jesus says, all right. I've talked to people who have said, I simply cannot worship a God who would allow somebody who has been guilty of all kinds of wickedness, who then asks for forgiveness in the very last moments of their life, if he forgives that person and treats them the same as everybody else, I just can't, I can't worship a God who would be like that. Which could be a problem if the only God you have available to worship is in fact like that. But this is an outrageous message that God has for us in the gospel. And in Romans 8, we're going to see Paul starting to cinch it together and showing just how outrageous it is and the implications of it. But I don't want us to get away from the fact that this is a message that is outrageous message that is true. Let me read to you from one of my favorite authors, Robert Farrar Capon. There's a quote from him in your bulletin. He says, I don't know why God insisted on allowing us to run our own history in the first place. And I don't know why he insists on leaving us free enough to botch it in the second. And I don't know why he insists on saving us in the third. Maybe he really is a jerk. But if those three insistences are the facts of the case, and if you're a Christian, you believe they are, then there's no way around the outrage of grace. Don't hold your breath waiting for the other score-keeping shoe to drop because it's not going to. Ever since Noah, God has had trouble keeping track of that shoe, and he finally lost it for good in Jesus. He simply doesn't keep score. History does, we do, but keeping score simply ends the game, which is why God refuses to do it. Instead, he erases all of our records by death and raises us by grace with nothing but his record left. Maybe it was just the best he could do. I don't know. But I do know that's what he says he does. The objection to it was voiced perfectly by the elder brother in Jesus' parable. That God's only answer was given equally perfect by the Father in that parable. It is right that we should make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive again, even your rotten kid brother. End of discussion. There is therefore now no 
condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the Torah of the life-giving Spirit set you free in Christ Jesus from the Torah of death-dealing sin. This is true. This is true now. This is true forever. But we also know that like biscuit, we don't always live that out. Our sin is a reminder to us of God's grace, but our sin is also a reminder that we are not there yet. Like we sang in the song this morning, let's begin. There's a new world to come. There's a new world to come, and so let's begin to live that way. All right. Sounds like a good idea. How do we do that? In a lot of ways, that's what Romans 8 is about. Later on in Romans, last few chapters, Paul is going to talk more and more about the specifics of what it like looks like for us to live that way, specifically for what it looks like for us to live that way in community. But here in chapter 8, he is giving us, with both barrels, a full-throated theology of God's grace and how that works in our lives, how by the life-giving Spirit, God enables us bit by bit to live, to begin to live that way. Romans 8 real thing. Romans 8 is kosher coke made with the real sugar, not corn syrup. Romans 8 is 200 proof grace served up straight, no chaser. This is the real thing, which is one of the reasons that we're going to take about three months with it, because I don't want us to rush through it. There is therefore now no condemnation. No matter what you did, no matter how many people you hurt, no matter how you feel about the fact that you did the things you did, whether you feel really bad about it right now or whether you don't feel as bad as maybe you should, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right now, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the Torah of the life-giving Spirit set you free in Christ Jesus. For the Torah of death, dealing sin. We are set free. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the objective truth of our liberation, for the fact that you have declared us free. We thank you for the life-giving spirit by which we may begin to live that way. We pray that in all of this theologizing, we would not miss 
the reality of your love for us. Your mercy poured out on us. Your grace given to us. We pray that as we study this magnificent chapter, that we would be drawn more and more deeply into worshiping you with our lives. We ask this in Christ's name.